I want to turn your hearts to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 28. And I want you to understand that Matthew's Gospel, we've gone through this, we we spent several years going through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we believe here that we teach through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse. It allows me not to get up on a little hobby horse every week and preach about something that I want to preach about. But Matthew's gospel is not just a random collection of facts or thoughts that were put together. Uh, It has a, a plan. It has a purpose. And at the end of Matthew, chapter 28, it basically leads up to God's planned conclusion. That being the climax of everything else throughout the entire book, that being the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the central event the resurrection is. It's also the central event in God's redemptive history. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we hope to be is contained is predicted on the reality of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, there would be no Christianity if there were no resurrection. Jesus would have just been another guy that was a religious fanatic and died on a cross and was buried. And people may have gone to see his tomb, his gravestone. The message of Scripture has always been a message of resurrection hope. Uh, A message that death is not the end for those who belong to God. The Bible teaches that for the believer, those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, death has never been an end. But rather, it's simply a doorway that leads to an eternity with God. We see that throughout Scripture. I just want to, in an introduction, just share some thoughts with you in The Old Testament, Abraham willingly obeyed God's command to sacrifice his own son. You've probably heard of that story. His own son Isaac, he was asked to sacrifice him. Why? It says, because in faith he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. The resurrection just isn't a New Testament thought. The psalmist declares over and over... Psalm 49, 15, God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol or hell... For he will receive me. And in Psalm 73 it says, thy counsel, With thy counsel thou will guide me, and afterward receive me into glory. Isaiah, in Isaiah 26, proclaimed, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. Even in Daniel, in the prophetic book of Daniel, chapter 12, it says that one day the people of God will awake to everlasting life. Hosea says in Hosea 6.2, he assures the believer that the Lord will raise up all believers to live before him on that day. And we've all heard of the book of Job. Poor guy Job that had all the wrong things go with him in, on in his life. But in Job chapter 14, verse 14, he says, If a man dies, will he live again? He asks a question, and then he declares this, All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. That ancient man of God even foresaw the reality of resurrection, proclaiming to his three friends, Bildad in particular, that tried to give him advice in Job 19. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. 
And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. It's been the promised hope of God throughout all of history. A hope predicted on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because his resurrection, beloved, guarantees ours. 1 Corinthians 15, Bob read this. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul declares, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, what's it say? All shall be made alive. It's also tragic, however, that throughout history, the fact of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been denied. It's been despised. It's been mocked. I think only a fool would try to explain away the resurrection because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are man's only hope of salvation and eternal life. There is no other hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the entire world. It's so foundational to Christianity, beloved, that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. Without resurrection, there is no Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Let's just pack up and go home. Turn on the Giants game. A person who believes in a Christ who was not raised believes in a powerless, impotent, dead Christ. If Christ did not rise from the dead, there is no redemption that was accomplished on the cross. And as Paul concludes, your faith is worthless because you're still in your sins. That was the first sermon that was preached in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter declared, and God raised him up again. He declared the resurrection. He says, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. He preaches the resurrection to his fellow Jews, as well as to the Gentiles, because the message of the resurrection is the only hope that anybody has. The resurrection is central. It's strongly emphasized throughout all of Paul's epistles. He declared that Christ was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Over and over again, Ephesians, he says, he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. In Philippians, Paul writes, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Aren't you blessed that we don't serve a God who's dead? He's alive, beloved. He's risen from the grave. 
Even Peter spoke in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. That's what awaits all those who put their faith, their trust in Christ. Notice I said in Christ, not in a church, not in a denomination, Not in some guy that calls himself a pastor or a priest. You don't put your faith in things like that. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even John, the apostle on the island of Patmos, says that he beheld the Lord Jesus Christ, who declared, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Those are the words of Christ. The foundation of all of our hope is expressed in Jesus' own words when he said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Because I live, you shall live also. I mean, even the most irreligious person, the person that never goes to church, that knows just a little bit about Christianity, understands that Christianity and the doctrine of Christian doctrine, the foundation is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. But unfortunately, the unbelieving world has many reactions to that belief. Most of them are negative. Most of them are wrong. Many people are simply indifferent to that fact that Christ rose from the dead, that there is a resurrection. They don't care whether it's true or not. I mean, religion in general, Christianity in particular, are no concern to people like that. Other people do not believe in the resurrection because maybe they're just ignorant about its nature or its meaning. They may have never heard such a thing. Maybe they never had it explained to them accurately and clearly. Some people in our society today are intentionally hostile to the resurrection. They don't reject the resurrection because it seems unprovable to human reason or because they have honest doubt or lack of proof. They denounce it simply because they hate the things of God. Some people even consider it their role to discredit the resurrection. They go go throughout their life trying to discredit Christ and discredit the resurrection. I find it interesting that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and every other leader in early church history, realized the supreme role in life and history was to proclaim the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now remember, during the time of Christ when his disciples were with them, a lot of them were slow to believe that Christ was who he said he was, and they were slow to understand the implications of that belief. They were slow to believe that Christ rose from the dead. But they soon became overwhelmed with that reality. And you can see this little group of fishermen... (laughs) Galileans, as they were known, looked down upon by all the intellectual people of the day, literally turned the world upside down after Christ left 
after he ascended back to the Father. And it was the power of the resurrection that did it. I want us to understand this morning that the resurrection is the key, the foundation, the cornerstone of our belief. And I just want to read for you out of Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, and then we'll look at three brief points concerning these verses. It says, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which is Sunday, because the, the Sabbath was Saturday, Mary Magdalene and other, the other Mary went to see the tomb. This is after Jesus had died and he was buried. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. couple notes here just on this text you notice that it says an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone you see a lot of different things about angels today you can either go in Christian bookstores and you see angel statues and pictures of angels and all sorts of things do you know that angels are only men male Gender, there's no female angels throughout scriptures. It's just interesting. We see that all the time and we never question that, but in the Bible, they were always of the male gender. And they also, whenever an angel spoke to somebody, guess what? They, be- they understood what they were saying, they believed what they were saying. They could understand. They could comprehend. It wasn't some kind of angel talk. Wherever you see in Scripture, when an angel speaks to somebody, they don't say, wow, I need an interpretation of what did you just say? Then It never happens that way. They completely understand because the angel talks in their native language. But you notice that this angel was sent by the Lord, and it says his purpose came and he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. And some people say, oh, that was so that Jesus could come out of the tomb. No, Jesus was already gone. (laughs) He was already out of there. Don't you think that a God who could raise his son, his son physical body from the dead, do you think a a big rock is going to stand in his way? I don't think so. I think Jesus got up, 
folded some things, brushed himself off, and walked right through the stone. He was well on his way. The reason the angel had to remove the stone was not to let Jesus out, but to let the women see that he wasn't there. I want to speak to you this morning on the simple truth of the unchanging truth of the resurrection in a changing world. Would you agree our world is changing? Rapidly. At a rapid pace. I mean, we see things going on, and it all started really, I mean, you can go back further, but a lot of the change in modern day society started around a day in our country known as September 11th. I mean, before that, when you went to the airport, what did you do? You know, you kind of waltzed to your, you know, the gate and the family could come with you and everything was fine and dandy. But September 11th really changed everything. There was a song written by Alan Jackson about that. Where were you when the world stopped turning? You probably heard that song. It's a country western song. It was nominated by the Academy of Country Music as Song of the Year and Single of the Year. It became the top-selling country singles of all time. But you know what we've learned? If the world really did stop turning on September 11th because of that tragedy when those airplanes flew into those buildings, seems so long ago now, it soon started spinning again. Life just went on. And we've become accustomed to all the security measures that we have to take. You know, you have to show up at the airport several hours early. You've got to take your shoes off. Silly, ridiculous things. You have to go through a metal detector at a sporting event. All those things are necessary because our world is changing. We were reminded once again of the tragedy of terror a year ago almost in Boston when the bombs went off at the Boston Marathon, maiming several people, killing some. Our world is changing. Our world is changing because of terror. Our world is changing because of politics. The world is changing. You have Russia on the brink of taking over some countries they used to have, even today. This isn't a peaceful world we live in, beloved. It's a world that's filled with unrest both military unrest, economic unrest, spiritual unrest. But I want you to know that as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we celebrate a risen Lord. Even though we do it in a world that was different from maybe the world that we grew up in, I want you to understand the simple truth that even though the world keeps changing, the world keeps seems like getting worse, the truth of the resurrection hasn't changed a bit. The events that took place on that first resurrection Sunday some 2,000 years ago supersede any event that has taken place in the world since. The events that take, took place on that resurrection morning render powerless all the acts of terror. They render powerless war, death, sickness, pain, sorrow, despair, heartbreak, loneliness, and sin. 
The world has changed, but the truth of the resurrection hasn't, and neither has its power. It really demonstrates the foundational truth of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he's Lord. He has a power over death. He has a power over sin. He has the power to make a difference in my life and in your life. I want us to celebrate the risen Lord by responding to the risen Lord in the same way that his followers responded the moment they saw him. In Matthew 28, we just read the story. It says, as Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to Jesus' tomb, there was this earthquake, and the stone that covered the tomb was rolled away, and an angel of the Lord appeared. And look at the first thing the angel of the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And then it says a little later on, as, as the women hurried away, they were still afraid but filled with joy. They fell at his feet and they worshipped him. And he reminds them in verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and tell them, brothers, go to Galilee and they'll see me there soon. Do you know that these are the first words the resurrected Christ spoke? In this simple message, we're going to learn how to live out the significance of the resurrected life, the resurrected Christ in our daily lives. Because the defining moment is right here, right now. There are three things I want you to know. First of all, the resurrection allows us to stand up to your fears. Stand up to our fears. During his ministry on earth, Jesus Christ, over and over again, you can take a concordance or a computer and you can look this up for yourself. Time and time again, Jesus commanded his followers to what? Fear not. Fear not, don't be afraid. After his resurrection, one of his first statements that he made in verse 10, do not be afraid. First words out of his mouth. I mean, why would Jesus say such a thing? Don't be afraid. Isn't fear just an emotion that we can't control? It's not the kind of feeling that we choose usually. Typically, fear hits us like a tidal wave when we're least prepared. If you've ever noticed a suspicious symptom in your body, maybe a pain in your chest or a numbness or a lump, and you're seized with panic, that's fear. Or maybe you've fallen asleep on the couch while you're waiting for your teenage young person to come home only to wake up an hour or so after curfew and to realize they're still not home and fear grips your heart where are they at, what happened to them you're overcome with fear or maybe you've gone to your job in the morning and on your way to your office the boss casually strolls out and says hey don't bother taking your jacket off today And you know you lost your job. And you have a family to support, a mortgage to pay, groceries to buy. See, that introduces us to a whole new type of fear. Fear that affects us physically. And our heart 
begins to beat faster, right? When we're fearful. Our stomach does flip-flops. Our hands begin to shake. It becomes difficult to breathe. I watch a show, Cops, on TV once in a while. Well, all the time, actually. But <laughs> ask my wife, you watching that again? Isn't there? Didn't we just see that one? But I watch this show, and it's funny, you know, the officers will pull somebody over, and they'll be walking up to the car, and you can just tell, boy, this, whoever's in this car is not, not going to go well. They're just sweating, and they're nervous, and, and, and the police officers know that. And they say, what's going on? Oh, no, 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 nothing, sir. You know, and they're trying to get their license, and they're fumbling, and sure enough, they're, they're caught up in something. You know, fear is something you can see in somebody. It's interesting, when you travel around the world, in foreign countries, especially in Israel, when we went to Israel, when you're going through security, they don't make you take your shoes off and frisk you down. They don't do any of that. You know what they do? They look at you. And they come up to you and they have a conversation with you. And they start to ask you questions. Some of them are kind of personal. And they can tell by your response, by the way you're blinking, by the way you're breathing, whether you're sweating or not, whether you've got more going on than what you're telling them. They're experts at it. I mean, isn't it just a matter of choice? He says, do not be afraid. Almost as if it was their choice. I'll tell you what it is. It is a matter of choice. Jesus isn't referring here to our emotions as much as he's referring to our thoughts and our actions. He's saying to these women, do not think fearfully, do not act fearfully. During times when we're faced with crisis, personal crisis, whether it's health or financial or family, whatever, we often let the uncertainty of that future cause us fear to the point where everything just goes on hold. We're kind of in a holding pattern. We're paralyzed because that's what fear does. It paralyzes you. And what Jesus is saying here is, you know what? I have the power over life and death. I have the power over any challenge that you're going to face. No act of war can separate you from my love. No health problem can separate you from my presence. No failed relationship or divorce or failed business or sin can separate you from my mercy. At the end of the whole chapter, he says in verse 20, Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, Surely I'm with you, what? Always. One translation, King James says, And lo, I am with you always. And a pilot said, I don't like that verse. <laughs> lo, <laughs> I am with you always. <laughs> you mean he's not with me when I'm up here at 30,000 feet? That's not what Jesus is saying. But Because of the resurrection, we don't have to fear, beloved. The resurrection tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. If he can conquer death, he can conquer anything. Well, how do we stand up to our fears? By responding in faith. Thoughts of faith. Acts of faith. Fear is just a feeling like any other feeling. And we don't have to live our lives by our feelings. We can live by faith in the fact 
that Christ rose from the dead. We can stand up to our fears by thinking faith and acting faith. Well, the second thing here I want you to notice is not only stand up to your fears, but Christ wants us to focus on our mission. Focus on your mission. Verse 10, after he says, do not be afraid, he says, go and tell my brothers. See, just as Jesus gave those faithful women who were coming to the tomb a message for the other disciples, he has given us a message for all the world. Go and tell them that I'm alive. Tell them that I can make a difference. Tell them that I'm offering them salvation. In each of the resurrection stories found in each of the four Gospels, Jesus emphasizes this mission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. He says, go and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Mark says, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Luke 24, 47, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, even in the gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. See, Jesus' first message to his followers after the resurrection was simply this, Go and tell somebody. Go and tell somebody. Go and tell others. In our fast-changing world today, this is a message that people need to hear more than any other message. That even though the world is filled with sin and hurt and hopelessness, you know what? The gospel message doesn't change. God is still there. Christ still rose from the dead. He can still forgive sin. He'll do that for you this morning if you cry out to him. The world needs to hear that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has power over sin and death. I was reading in a Reader's Digest magazine a little story of a guy named Jeff. And uh, Jeff goes on, he tells this story about when he was only 12. And he says him and a couple of his friends were out in their backyard playing baseball and accidentally he threw kind of a high pitch and it went over the, the, the batter's head and, and right through somebody's window in the next yard. And they quickly looked around to see if anybody had seen, nobody had seen. The only witness was Jeff's younger brother. So Jeff knew what he had to do. He went over to his younger brother and he said, hey, you know, I need you to keep quiet about this. I don't want to get in trouble and I'm going to give you some candy. Jeff's younger brother said, uh, I don't want any candy. <laughs> okay, uh, well, you know what? If, if you keep quiet about this, I'm, I'll, give you, I'll give you one of my baseballs. I don't want your baseball." All right, all right, I'll give you one of the baseballs and my new glove. Just don't say anything to anybody. The younger brother looked right at him and said, I don't want a baseball or your new glove. And his brother Jeff looked at him in his exasperation and just said, well, what do you want? What do you want? This little brother looked right at him and says, I want to tell. <laughs> Laughter 
That little boy had some great information, didn't he? He didn't want to keep quiet about it. And you know what? It should be the same way with us in our Christian faith. We've got a great story to tell. And the world desperately needs to hear it. Just look around. You've heard the saying, the best defense is a good offense, right? Well, as a nation, we certainly need to be able to defend ourselves from those who wish to attack the freedom that we experience here. But the best solution, it's not just to blow everybody up. The best solution is to introduce every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every soul on this earth to Jesus Christ. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, I will destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. That's what we need to do. This is how God wants us to destroy our enemies. He wants us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them all. That's our mission as a church, as individuals. And it's more important now than ever. Focus on your mission. When's the last time you were able to share the gospel with someone? When's the last time you were able to share your testimony with someone? So important to be able to do that. I always tell Christians, you should be able to share your testimony in five minutes or less. Well, the third thing I want to share with you this morning is not just that we should be able to stand up to our fears and focus on our mission, but also to understand that we can rely on his promises. He says in verse 10 there, Matthew 28, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Then he makes a promise. Look at what he says. There they will see me. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? You say what I tell you to say and I'm going to show up. (laughs) Just do what I'm telling you to do and I'll be there. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was working with a couple other churches and we were putting on an event for a bunch of kids and we were bringing in a speaker and pizza and the whole thing. And quite a few kids coming and everything. And I remember the guy that was going to be leading the, the music, you know, we pretty much finished our planning meeting and uh, we were all done praying and everything. And he goes, well, I guess now all we got to do is just, we'll, we'll just see if God shows up. <laughs> I kind of looked at him and that's kind of a weird thing to say. I thought that was just kind of odd. I didn't say anything. I just thought, what do you mean if God shows up? And a little later on in the meetings, one of the other youth pastors said, yeah, yeah, I guess we'll just wait and see if God shows up. You know, we're kind of... Finally, somebody said it a third time. And I just said, look, if we're kind of unsure about this God thing, if we're unsure whether God's going to show up, you know, we got other things to do. We got better ways to spend our time and money. I mean, it's just one of those things people say. I understand that. But if we have a question about whether God is going to be here on a Sunday morning, maybe we should just not do Sunday morning. Maybe we shouldn't do Wednesday night Bible study. Maybe we shouldn't come to church. If we really have a question in our heart, is God going to show up? Of course God's going to show up. He promises to show up.
The fact is, if Jesus doesn't show up, the church is powerless. There's no power in a church without a risen Lord. There's no power or hope in just socially feeding the poor. There's no power in having a bunch of church programs. Our hope is in the power of Jesus Christ, that he can change lives. Because if he doesn't change lives, our church, or any church for that matter, has no future. I mean, if we have to try to change this world in our power, we don't stand a chance. We have to rely on his power. Imagine how the women who witnessed the resurrected Jesus must have felt when they told his other followers what they were to do. When they met him, they said, you know, okay, here, here's what he said. He said, you know, pack your bags and you've you got to make this journey into Galilee and Jesus is going to meet you there, alive, in the flesh, because we've seen him. I wonder if those women, as they were communicating what Jesus told them to communicate, had any doubts. I wonder if maybe they second-guessed themselves. I wonder if they thought, you know what, did we really see Jesus? I mean, did he really tell us this, or is this just, are we in a dream? Is this just our imagination? I mean, what if we tell these guys this, and then they go to Galilee, and and Jesus isn't there? We're going to look like fools. The Bible doesn't say if they, those thoughts crossed their minds or not. It doesn't tell us. But I do know this about those ladies. They were willing to risk their reputation and rely on the promises of Jesus. They were willing to lay it all on the line. I want to ask you, are we willing to lay everything on the line for our risen Lord? We see how it plays out. They weren't disappointed. I mean, every week I'll come up here and teach from the word of God and proclaim certain promises that he claims to have promised to us. Every week as a church, we make certain stances and promises even in the community in which we live. I mean, the promise is basically this. Give your life to Jesus Christ and he will change it. He will make it what he meant it to be in the first place. Give your heart to him and he will fill it. With his presence. Give your burdens to him. And he will bear them for you. Most importantly, confess your sins to him. And the Bible says that he will forgive you. Absolutely and completely. Give him your sorrow, your fear, your broken dreams, your worries. And he will turn them into joy. And peace and love and fulfillment. This past Wednesday night, we had a little study for the last couple weeks. And we were talking in uh, the the Gospel of, of John there, where Jesus was basically telling his disciples that their sorrow that they were going to experience because this is just literally hours before he was to be crucified. This is his closest friends on the earth and he's spending time with them. 
And he tells them in verse 16 of John 16, he says, A little while and you will see me no longer. Can you imagine the sorrow, the fear that maybe filled their heart? What do you mean we're not going to see you anymore, Jesus? And again a little while and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he says to us? A little while and you will see him not. And then a little while longer and you will see me because I go to my father. And they were saying, what does he mean? We don't understand this. It's like doublespeak. We don't know what Jesus is talking about. And in verse 19, the heart of Jesus, remember, he's, he's focusing on the cross. He's fo- focusing on everything that he's going to have to do in his humanity to suffer for the sins of the world. He has a lot on his mind, you might say, if you were going to be executed at 1 o'clock this afternoon and your life was going to be no more and it was going to be a horrendous execution, I bet you probably wouldn't be thinking about what I'm telling you right now. You'd probably be thinking, ah, what am I going to do? You know, you're, you're, going to be, you're going to just going to be obsessed with that thought that your life is going to be given up in a few hours. And yet he takes the time to answer their question that they weren't willing to ask him personally. Verse 19, it says, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him And he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by the saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while and you will see me. And then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. In other words, you're going to be very sorrowful because you're going to see some things that are going to be done to me in a few hours that are just going to blow your mind. This is not something that you would have thought the Messiah would have to go through. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Why will the world rejoice? Because they killed the one that was giving them all this grief. Jesus, this man, Jesus, finally he's dead. Good, they put him on a cross. Now his followers will leave. The world was rejoicing over the fact. That's why they stood at the foot of the cross or before Pilate and they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. But then he says in verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow... Does it say we'll be replaced by joy? No. What does it say? Your sorrow will turn into joy. That's why I say give him your sorrow. Give him your fear. Give him your broken dreams, your worries, whatever it might be. He's not going to just replace it with something else. He's going to actually take those events that are sorrowful in your life, like the cross, and he's going to make it into a joyful event. That's why Paul can say, I can glory in none other but the cross, an instrument of death. That's why the scriptures tell us that it was for the joy set before him. What was that joy set before him? It was the cross. Because he knew what it would accomplish for the sins of the world. We serve the same God today. I mean, those are bold promises. Are you telling me the hurt I'm feeling right now because of my broken relationship, God can turn that into joy? Yes. Are you saying the frustration I have financially because I lost my job and I can't feed my family, I can't pay my mortgage, somehow Jesus is going to take that and and turn it into joy? Yes. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he will do it. That's his promise. He said that and he will fulfill it. Because without the promises of Jesus, the church doesn't have too much to offer the world. As a matter of fact, we don't really have anything at all. We couldn't offer joyful fellowship because he is our source of joy. 
We couldn't offer any promises. Our joy wouldn't exist. We couldn't offer social ministries because those ministries are operated by people who have been changed by his power. Without his promises, those lives would never have been changed. And without those ministries, people's others' lives would never have been touched. We live by the promises of God. He's our hope. Without him, we can do absolutely nothing. And as we face these uncertain times, beloved, we can no longer afford to put our trust just in ourselves. We can't afford definitely to put ourselves in our, our, our trust in our economy or in our company or even in our country as great as it is or in anyone else for that matter. Our one hope, our one hope is to put our hope only in him, in the risen Savior. And even though the world is always changing, the truth of the resurrection doesn't change. We celebrate it as it should be celebrated every year. We stand up to our fears by thinking and acting in faith. We focus on our mission by telling others of the glorious risen Savior. We rely on his promises to show up in our lives and in the lives that we communicate the gospel to. Here today, you understand some things maybe you didn't understand when you came in. You understand why Jesus died. You understand that he died. You know that he died for you. He died for your sins. You know that the scriptures say that he rose from the dead. Those questions have all been answered. The question that God is asking you today is pretty simple. It's very simple. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? That's the inescapable question. Because I'm here to tell you, he alone can redeem you. He can purchase you, free you from the power and the penalty of your sins. He alone can transform you. He can restore you to fellowship with your creator God and give your life eternal purpose. He alone can do that. Church can't do that for you. Trying to live a good life isn't going to do that for you. The Bible says very clearly that we're in need of a Savior. We've all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's not a matter of trying to make yourself look better. It's not a matter of trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and wash yourself off and make yourself presentable. That doesn't impress God. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9... For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by the faith that we put in the risen Lord and in his work on Calvary. Will you turn from your sin this morning? Will you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's a decision only you can make, but you can make it here, even now in the quietness of this moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word here this morning.
Lord, I pray that as we desire to stand up to our fears and focus on our mission and rely on your promises, Lord, that you would lead, that you would guide us. Lord, I pray for any here this morning within the sound of my voice, if they have yet to put their faith, their trust in the risen Lord. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to bow your knee to him. To make the simple statement of faith, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be gracious to me, God. Show me the way of salvation. There's not a person in this room who could claim to be sinless, perfect in every way. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways. We've dishonored God because God is holy. But the one thing that is clear is that God has provided a way out through his son, the risen son. When he died on that cross that Friday many years ago, his last words were, it is finished. He didn't mean his torture was over. He meant the payment for sin has been made. It's complete. It's done. The work of Christ is done. We no longer need to work for our salvation. We need to simply trust in the work that Christ has done for us on Calvary. Won't you cry out to him today? Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. My life is a mess. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust in you as my Lord and Savior. He'll answer that prayer. And us believers today, I pray that we would leave here with a new boldness to share the gospel message with those we've yet to hear. We thank you, Lord, and we pray you bless our time of song and then baptism as we conclude our service today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.